Hi, I'm Rena Grove. And I'm Madhvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week we'll be discussing a different trend or topic so you can stay informed the easy way. So, Madhvi, what's the topic this week? So today, on the day this episode airs, the 28th of May, there is a very important and nail-biting election going on in Turkey. It's actually the runoff election because they had a national election a couple of weeks ago and Erdogan, who has been in power for 20 years in Turkey, failed to get more than 50%, which would have been required for him to win outright. So now they have the runoff election and he's going to be up against Kamal Kalicdaroglu. And yeah, this guy has been in power for 20 years. He has survived coup. He has turned Turkey around economically. One time, sort of in the first 10 years, the GDP tripled and he was doing really well. He built a lot of airports and highways and railways and housing and mosques and really made a new middle class in Turkey. And then recently, Turkey has been subject to more than 80% inflation, which is massive because here in Germany, we have 7.4% and we can all feel it. So it's very devastating for a lot of people who can't afford to eat. And so the economy has done a complete U-turn, basically because of his policies, because he had this idea that interest rates lead to inflation, which is the opposite of what all economists say. So he repeatedly, I'm laughing, but <laughs> just like, how did this guy get this job? We'll get into how the guy got the job. He repeatedly reduced the inflation rate against the vice of most economists and then kept firing all of his bank chiefs and that's how he got into this position. Um, also all the spending before and stuff like that. And the other thing that he's done, which is really significant for Turkey, is that he's turned it around from a secular state into more more along the lines of like an Islamic democracy. Under him, Turkey has seen a rebrand. They now want to be referred to as Turkiye. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But it seems like no one's really doing that. I haven't heard anyone using Turkiye, no. So I guess we'll stick to Turkey like the rest of all the media, including a lot of Turkish people are still calling it Turkey, so... Also, he's turned it more towards authoritarianism. So those are the two big changes. And yeah, it's actually really surprising that he got like a really significant part of the vote and he was in the lead. This is the first time that he's kind of had somewhat of a challenge. But my prediction is that he'll probably win today's election. Probably. So there are many reasons why Erdogan is popular as he is today. But who is he? So he, unlike many Turkish politicians, does not come from a wealthy family. He was born on the 26th of February, 1954, in a poor, conservative Muslim family. He, interestingly enough, studied at a religious school, which at the time was very unusual because normally that was reserved only for people who are going to become clergy members or otherwise do religious duties. He started his political career as the mayor of Istanbul, which he was from 1994 until 1998. Yeah, and he was really very good at this. He really was popular in Istanbul and turned 
the city around somewhat. However, his term did come to an end because he was convicted of inciting racial hatred for publicly reading a nationalist poem that included the lines, The mosques are our barracks, the domes are helmets, the minarets are bayonets, and the faithful our soldiers. So he spent four months in jail. And then he returned to politics, as all good politicians do, it seems. Yeah, just a quick stint in jail. So in 2001, he founded the Justice and Development Party, also called the AKP, which he was actually head of until 2014 when he had to stand down because he was elected as president. But I'll get to that in a second. He served as prime minister of Turkey from 2003 to 2014. And as mentioned before, in 2014, he became president. Now, in 2017, something very interesting happened. There was a new constitution that was voted on that passed. And due to this constitution, the president, who at the time was Erdogan, and still is Erdogan, was given even more power. And this was an interesting move because it moved Turkey away from being a democracy and more towards being an autocracy. Yeah, a lot of that was a response to coup that happened with a religious group that tried to actually overthrow him before. And so he kind of really cracked down and fired a bunch of people, like everyone basically in the civil service from people in government or the civil service, but also like teachers, and then replaced everyone with his own loyalists, which really helped him in this kind of autocratic direction. Yes, he consolidated power and he did a real purge, didn't he? And also, you know, from this time, um, there was a lot of restriction of media freedoms and opposition. All opposition started happening. According to Reporters Without Borders, Turkey ranks 165 out of the 180 countries tracked and it dropped 16 places since 2022 only. Right now, about 40 journalists are jailed in the country. And about 90% of the country's media is under government control. Which, first of all, is just a great explanation as to why the guy did so well if he controls all the media. I was reading an interview in The New Yorker about this, and the person being interviewed was saying that it's not the way you imagine it in, you know, Western countries. It's very much like you turn on the news and it's Erdogan's face everywhere. He controls everything. Like, you're constantly indoctrinated with all of this propaganda. Ah, yeah, that was the interview with the Turkish writer Kuya Genç. He wrote Under the Shadow and a history of Turkish literature for Harvard. He's a novelist and essayist, and he's just really prolific and very smart. But he gave a really quite a nuanced explanation of why Erdogan does really well beyond the, yes, it's the media and all of these kind of controls that he has. Uh, which makes the election not fair. And maybe I'll just read this. Yeah. So he said, There is an unnerving confluence of religion and capitalism in Turkey. Maybe only literature can explain it to us. So in Turkey, in the 70s, there were strong leftist movements, strong Marxist movements, which captured the imagination of the working class. And those revolutionary movements were crushed by a military coup in 1980, after which a nationalist religious identity for Turkey emerged, imposed by the military, a kind of identity that took its inspiration from Republican America. We believe in God, we believe in capitalism kind of identity, and that became attractive here. 
and as the left lost its power, as the leftists were imprisoned or tortured, the Islamists took their place, and they established these very close connections with the members of the working classes, the impoverished with the outcasts. They said, we will help you in the name of Allah, we will form partnerships with other Muslims around the world, in Qatar, in Saudi Arabia. Muslims have money and we will bring together your wallets and their coffers. And so that's how the AKP, which is his party, won the heart of the working class. And it's quite interesting because everyone thought that this election would be disastrous for Erdogan because basically his response to the terrible earthquake, you know, so many people died, was just awful. And then he kind of turned up a bit afterwards and said, oh, well, you kind of like, you who survived, you survived. We'll help you rebuild. We'll give you some loans. Um, but, you know, kind of shit happens sort of thing. And, you know, you've got to work hard and get out of it. And then the opposition leader came along and said, look, this is unacceptable. The government should have done better. We will help you rebuild. We will give you the money to rebuild. And seven out of the nine regions that were hit by the earthquake still voted for Erdogan mm -hmm. because they don't trust that leftist thing like they are very much in this american sort of god meets capitalism yeah. sort of he says it really nicely in there where he says like what free money no that doesn't exist stop telling me fairy tales stop being romantic this is real life and so weirdly erdogan did that was what he needed to say also uh, he really shed some light on why people stick to erdogan and it's not even about economics it goes back to Ataturk and how Ataturk, you know, really forcefully actually turned the country around. He was like secularism. He modernized the country. He formed the country. He made the country. Without mm -hmm. him, there would be no Turkey at all. And he had very strong ideas. But then a lot of people, they were not ready for these ideas. That was their identity, you know, like the religious stuff started being looked down upon. And what he was saying is this is still a trauma that is undealt with and they're still hanging on to that hurt and that trauma. Mm. And that's why they won't let Erdogan go because Erdogan has this idea of also the caliphate, basically, you know, this like the, he's a Sunni Muslim. He takes in all the refugees from Syria, which is why very interestingly, the opposition leader, Khalij Darola, has actually made a really weird statement about immigrants because immigration is a thing that, you know, you can latch onto and you can, like, there were so many Syrians, like we million or whatever in Turkey right now. He's aligned himself with the Kurdish people, fine, because Kurdish people make up a lot of the Turkish population and that's been for a long time. But immigrants from Afghanistan and Syria and stuff, the Turkish people are feeling that tension. Yeah. And he's basically said he's going to protect the borders, which it's one of the ways that he can appeal to people. And then on the other side... Erdogan has made pacts with, I think, the really extremist Kurdish religious party and another party. Basically, they're against every single LGBTQIA plus space. They want to stop what they call really deprived behavior of men paying alimony to their divorced wife, which is weird because divorce is fine in Islam anyway, but whatever. Who, who wants to stop this? That's one of the parties that Erdogan has formed, you know, his own little kind of coalition and deal with. Because he's gone more towards the religious stuff. But that is anti-Muslim, because I have recently learned that in Islam, when you get married, it is all dealt with and settled with before you get married. So 
I think they don't want divorce. And Erdogan is uh, fiercely anti-feminist, which just means you don't want anyone having power apart from men. But that sounds very contradictory. How can you claim to be religious and then go against a part of your religion? Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's I don't really know if in the end it's about religion for him and more so about power. I mean, I think also he was just making a deal with people <laughs> yeah. who, who have a bit more of an extreme view on these things, probably. To keep power. Um, mm. I was talking to people about it, specifically people in the Middle East. And there seems to be, I don't want to say a like for his politics, but generally sort of an appreciation for Erdogan. Because I think that, I mean, this is just my interpretation of what I've observed. I think it's because they see him as a person who, a strong person, for lack of a, you know? I think that in on a international stage, there doesn't really seem to be a leader with a strong backbone. Well, a he's a strong man. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's a he... literal strong man. <laughs> <laughs> when you have leaders who basically kowtow down to any Western politician... I think that there is kind of a positive, th- like they view this person who is maybe standing up and always not necessarily aligning themselves with the West all the time, not implying that all Middle Eastern politicians do this, you know, but so I think that there is a not necessarily a respect or a agreement with his politics, but I think it reflects a desire for a strong leader who pushes back against the West in a certain way. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about, you know, why a lot of Turkish people in Germany vote for Erdogan, which actually I think should be totally illegal, because if you don't live in a country, you should not be able to to vote for that country. It's been messing up a lot of elections, like the one in Hungary. They were saying that the reason that they think that Turkish people here vote for him also is it's like an identity thing, because... Germany didn't give them passports or welcome them into the society here. Whereas Erdogan says, hey, you can vote in this election, you're Turkish. There's this idea of, you know, this Turkish identity and he's like a father figure, Mm. like giving them a sense of belonging. And I think what you're saying also is kind of the same thing where it's a strong figure that legitimizes your identity yeah in a way like i I think maybe that a lot of erdogan's success maybe it's the wrong word but kind of does ride on like the political situation worldwide in like a post-2001 world you know where i think that as anti-muslim sentiment was on the rise worldwide i think that being this strong figure and uniting your country really helps consolidate power and and gives people something to believe in. And especially if those people live abroad, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what you were saying about the Middle East, right? Because Ataturk came along and, like, he made the Turkish nation. And in order to make a nation, you have to give everyone, like, sort of like what Putin does in Russia, you know, like, everyone speaks this language, let's just ignore all these small groups or let's try and like integrate them forcefully like he did with the Kurdish people um in in Turkey because there was no there were no countries actually before it was the west and the colonial powers that came in and just like started drawing lines and made all those countries yeah. along ethnic divisions so most of the divisions and the problems in this area 
is due to after the dissolving of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War. You know, it was like, oh yeah, France can have Syria and somebody can have Turkey. It's just that Ataturk happened to have the army. He was an army guy and was anti-imperialist and he made his own country. And as part of that, as part of his vision, which was a secular country, he officially abolished the caliphate on the 3rd of March, 1924. And then the other Muslim nations debated the validity of Turkey's unilateral abolition of the caliphate as they decided whether they should confirm the Turkish action or appoint a new caliph. And then they held a conference in Cairo in May 1926, and the resolution was passed declaring the caliphate a necessity in Islam. But it actually failed to implement this decision. And then they did it again, like with another Islamic conference in Mecca in 1926, and then Jerusalem in 1931, but they failed all to reach a consensus. So Turkey didn't accept this re-establishment, but it's like interesting how mythologies or how ideas you know, they continue, mm-hmm. and it's not been too long. It's like a 100 years, right? And this idea or this trauma, whatever it is, if you're saying that people from this area kind of like the way that he does bring a unity in this area in some way, or the identity is a strong one in Turkey, I think it's likely that this archetype of, you know, the sultan goes back, and it's, it's very powerful, these archetypes and these these images, and it's very hard to get rid of. Even though Ataturk tried, (laughs) it's going backwards now, yeah. And I also think that maybe Turkey is in a really unique spot because they're kind of caught between Europe and the Middle East. Because I'm always confused whether or not I should include Turkey in the Middle East. Because, like, Middle Eastern people say it's not. Some people say it is. Like, very confusing. Is Turkey in the Middle East or not? Well, it's in Eurovision. What, great. But actually, Mm -hmm. that has nothing... (laughs) But no, so that's, is Australia. That's how we measure things. Is Australia? In yeah, Europe? Australia is in Eurovision, as is Israel. How did Australia get in? No, I understand Turkey and Israel. I don't understand. So it actually doesn't have anything to do with countries, but it more has to do with television providers. So the same television provider operates in Israel, and Australia is in Eurovision because they were invited as a guest one year. I can't remember why. And then they won, so then Eurovision was hosted in Australia. And now... Australia is just kind of part of it. Why would you invite Australia as a guest? No, they're a good time. Are they? I don't know. There's a drunkard at the bar that's annoying. Exactly. Well, maybe not. You get them at their drunkest when they're funny. Yeah, but their funny is no good. Now I've just offended all the Australian people. I'm so sorry, Australia. Anyway, back to Erdogan. I asked my friend Emre, shout out to Emre, who is Turkish, how to correctly pronounce Erdogan. So attempting to do it correctly, but I asked him how he felt about him, and his response was, he sucks. And then, like five minutes later, he also goes, but the opposition also sucks. <laughs> and he also told us that actually most Turkish people call him Tayyip, which is his middle name. So that's just an interesting fun fact, exclusive. Turkey is, it is divided, like they have a east side and a west side in, in Istanbul, and they also have this division between secular and religious a city, countryside, modern state, and this sort of old... Yeah, yeah, and I think maybe that's another reason why Erdogan, with his religious stuff, is doing quite well. Because maybe there's also a bit of it of like, oh, okay, well, Europe is... You don't really belong to Europe. So 
in a post 9-11 world, maybe we can lean a bit more towards the Middle East. And if we move a bit more towards religion there, we can find some acceptance and belonging. Because I do think, like, Turkey, yeah, I feel I feel kind of bad for them as a country. Stuck between two people and they don't really belong. If they just embrace that, I mean, they're in a strategically brilliant position on all sides. Like, this is what makes Turkey great. Why would you be like, I want to align myself with those dudes over there? Because you want a sense of identity. I get it. I'm projecting from my own personal trauma. But actually, it's interesting what you're saying about the identity thing, because the opposition leader, who I think is quite nice, actually, he's got a nice, he's soft-spoken, he's an Alevi, which is a heterodox Islamic sect that combines elements of Sunni and Shia Islam, and it's a religious minority in Turkey. And he's done actually very well. He won about 45% of the vote, which is stunning for someone who really comes from this. And he also announced his support for the queer community and also his support for the progressive Kurds. And that's why he got a lot of their vote, because I think there are about 20, 20% of the population in Turkey. Yeah, I mean, he he's very good at speaking to the public, right? Like, he releases these video messages where it's just him sitting in his kitchen in front of a camera. I think in one video he was like playing with an onion, like, you know, showing the onion being like, the price of this onion, like addressing the cost of inflation. And I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about it. And they were saying about how people then were dissecting his videos and just kept talking about how he got a new air fryer because they could see it in the background of his videos. But yeah, like he's supposed to be like, very, you know, he's a soft spoken person. He's... And I think if you're talking about alignment between East and West, definitely the EU and the West would welcome this guy more because he would just restore Turkey's reliability as an ally in you know, NATO and also in the, in the EU. And he would approach Putin with like maybe some caution. Everyone's been a real... He's sort of positioned himself as like someone who can like be an intermediate, right? He hasn't condemned the war. He hasn't really supported anyone. And he's been like, hey, I can negotiate. That is 100% how Erdogan talks. Yeah, it's a really good impression. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hire me. If you're having a party and you want an Erdogan impersonator, hire Rina. Absolutely. <laughs> we can give her to you for free. <laughs> you get what you paid for and I'm free. <laughs> Another thing to discuss, but we're running out of time is the Kurds. We will do another episode on it. And now, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Number one, I think one thing that I was really thinking about when I was reading about how Erdogan is going about just raising the minimum wage and giving people their pensions early, like, you know, you can have your pension at 49 and all of this kind of stuff. He's throwing a lot of money now at his policies pre-election. I think, obviously, people are going to go for it because I kind of would too if somebody promised me my pension now. But I do think that also we have to be realistic about these things. And if he gives everyone their pension now, Turkey's going to be in an even worse economic situation. So when you do hear such promises from politicians, maybe don't fall for them. Thing two, read some of Turkish writer Kuya Genç. You can read Under the Shadow or The Line in the Nightingale. Kuya Gench is particularly noteworthy because 
Turkish literature has mostly consisted of non-Turkish people writing about Turkey, whereas Kuya Genç is one of the first Turkish people to write a history of Turkish literature for Harvard. And along similar lines, I really like Elif Shafak, the novelist. Yeah, all of her novels. Read one of them. They're fun. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. If you like this show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as four euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.